Today on The Lab Report, we're going to talk about small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Do you find yourself bloated after meals or yes. constipated? Yes, all, all right. the time. I wasn't asking you, it was rhetorical. Oh, my bad. The world of medicine can be challenging. Clinicians and patients are always looking for more options, more effective treatments, and in the end, more answers. Functional and integrative medicine focuses on addressing root causes of disease. Here at Genova Diagnostics, we've watched this field evolve and grow for over 35 years. We've not only adapted, we've led. Join us as we talk about functional medicine, laboratory testing, and optimizing health. Welcome to the Lab Report. Hello. Hi, Michael Chapman. Oh, hi. Hi. Welcome to the Lab Report. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. you're welcome. Hmm. So, here's feeling? a... What? I got my hair cut. I noticed that. I got my hair cut to match the logo... The yeah. caricature drawn of me on the logo. See, I really appreciate that effort. Yeah. Thank you. I'm glad you liked it. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I go all out, 110%. No, that's what, I mean, that's what we need here at the lab report. We need people we who are going to go all out. Because if, if you're not in it, I mean, if well they said no hair, you <sighs> yes. know, we just, we'd do it. Oh, I'd do it. Totally. Without even thinking about no it. No way. I wouldn't even call my wife. How dare you, sir? I know. Mm-hmm. Although I don't think they would, I don't I have no reason why they would say something so absurd. <laughs> yeah, why is there suddenly a no hair policy? I don't, you that know, makes no sense. It, it would be a bit militant for a, a, a podcast about Kinda functional not, medicine. It's not our jam. Here it's not know, really. Yeah, kind of. It's, it's pretty nice actually. I can kind of wear my hair however I want. <laughs> I don't think I could come in with a mohawk. Uh, maybe you, you think could. I could. You could. Okay, I'm gonna do it. We'd make fun of it, but you could do it. Well, that, what, how is that any different Fair. from any other day? It's a great point. I mean, I'm basically a walking pinata down Aww. there. No, it's just because of your wispy hair. Yeah, I'm sure my stammering doesn't help. And the gulping. You know, I didn't notice how much I stammer until I started <laughs> recording myself. It's not that, though. That's not That's not it. It's more like the baking shows that you watch. Is that part of it? Mm, some. Mm. Just generally the things that make up me <laughs> is what you're saying. But it's all out of love. Yeah, love me less. Mm. Well, besides all that, what are we talking about today? I thought today we would talk about SIBO. Hmm. What do you think? I think that's a great idea. Yeah. I mean, I think we all know what SIBO is, right? Well, well, I do now. It's small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. But if I'm honest, can I be honest? I think this is a good place to be honest. <laughs> I didn't know what small intestinal bacterial overgrowth was before I came here to Genova. <laughs> Sorry, my, my finger just slipped. <laughs> On the button there. It's terrible. She really thought that was funny, though. Yeah. She did. Having a great time. Yeah. But I have a degree in biology and chemistry. I went through four years of medical school. I did an internship. I did a residency. Uh-huh. I've spent nearly 20 years in critical care and in the hospital and seeing thousands and thousands of patients. And I had never heard of SIBO before coming here, which makes me think... This is either a huge downfall in conventional medical training, or I wasn't paying attention at all, and the answer's probably somewhere in the middle. But the other theory I had was that maybe Genova made this up. Hmm. Interesting. That was quite the laundry list of mm. credentials that you just rattled off just basically there. saying, I've been around a long time. And I, I really can't speak to any potential downfalls of conventional medicine training. What I can tell you is that I have spent four years in naturopathic medical training. Uh-huh. Several years in clinical practice. Okay. I won the spelling bee in third grade. <laughs> and after years of shopping at the local store, I've amassed <laughs> tons of free gasoline points. And despite <laughs> all that life experience, yeah. 
I too had never heard of SIBO. <gasps> <laughs> See, you're laughing at me too. But they're having fun. They are having fun. They love this podcast. <laughs> they should subscribe. They should. They should. Thanks for all your support, guys. <laughs> Appreciate it. I think that one emailed me. <laughs> How did you not hear about SIBO, though? You're in you naturopathic school. Well, most of what we're talking about with the naturopathic training is we did, we did a lot of evaluation and management from a conventional standpoint, right? Because we're primary care doctors. Mm -hmm. So we're trained in how to evaluate and management manage from a primary care perspective. So even then, when I graduated in 2012, SIBO was not something that was considered a, a diagnosis, right? Well, how did we both go through all of this extensive training and clinical experience and really not know about SIBO until we got here? I think there's a couple of different reasons. If I'm just making things up. You can. I'm hypothesizing. As per usual. I mean, okay. what? You know, SIBO has really gotten a lot more attention in the literature by the likes of people like Dr. Mark Pinmentel mm, right. at Cedars-Sinai, who's done a lot of research and investigation into this. The actual condition, you know, it's, it's not still not a diagnosis, but this condition as we think of it, has been talked about in the research for a long period of time. I've seen articles dating back to yeah, the me 80s, too. 70s. And that's my problem. I've yeah. been around a long time, dude. Yeah. And I am looking at this literature saying, how did I not know? Well, I mean, one thing that I think about is prior to the breath test, the only method to evaluate microbial contribution in the small intestine is through a small intestinal culture, right. which is not very fun. Invasive. And... You know, when you think about it compared to the types of diseases that we're generally managing, that mm. type of invasive procedure doesn't exactly, the juice isn't worth the squeeze when we're talking about something like IBS and bloating. Makes um, sense. And with the advance of all this knowledge that we have about the microbiome, I think that's also been a, a major catalyst for the research into what is the small intestinal microbiome like. So I think these things have all kind of come together to create a greater understanding of the importance of the microbiome in the small intestine and what can happen as far as an abnormality. Well, I think the good news is that since you and I have worked here at Genova, which is several years now, we've spent a lot of time studying this condition yeah. and going through all of the research. We do SIBO breath testing. We have a lot of knowledge about it. So I think it might be helpful for us to impart that on some people who also may not have heard about SIBO. Yeah, because like us right. coming out of school, maybe haven't heard about this as a, a would you call it a, maybe a syndrome or a condition? I think at this particular point we could call it a I don't know. Does condition. it have an ICD-9, ICD-10 code? No, oh. it does not. Um, yeah. So, you know, maybe call it a syndrome or a, a condition, but it's not a diagnosable, it's not a diagnosis. Right. And what we're talking about is we all know that in our large intestine, there's a ridiculous amount of bugs there. Yeah, trillions. Lots, lots of bugs. Trillions. And in the small intestine, Quadrillions. not quite as much in the small intestine for yeah. a lot of reasons. Yeah. Um, because we have stomach acid and enzymes, which make it an inhospitable place for bacteria to live in general. There are some, right. but not nearly the amount in your large intestine. And Under so, normal physiologic right, conditions. Yep. Right. And so when... The significant amount of bacteria from your colon start to make their way into the small intestine where they don't belong causes a lot of significant issues. 
like specific symptoms and sequelae of problems with digestion and absorption. Yeah, and a lot of them look like IBS. Right. Whether that's change in stool frequency, whether that's abdominal pain due to gas, whether that's excessive bloating, early satiety, mm-hmm. um, maybe even reflux as part of that. All of those things can be associated with an overgrowth of bacteria in the small intestine. And there's a couple different locations where this can happen too, either in the proximal or the distal small intestine. Right. And the ideology of those might be different as well. Mm-hmm. So that all that's kind of interesting when we're talking about diagnosis, especially if you're considering a breath test to, to rule this in or out. Well, what are some things that might set someone up? I said diagnosis, but you know what I meant. I do. I do. Well, what are some things that might set someone up for developing SIBO? Well, the biggest one in my mind, I think, is is proton pump inhibitors. Mm, yeah. Chronic PPI use, essentially lowering the pH of the stomach over a long period of time. And remember that the acidity of the stomach not only is to help break down your food, it's also to sterilize your small gut. So if you're constantly adjusting that pH level, then you're allowing <laughs> gulp a more hospitable environment. All oh. <laughs> oh, right, yeah, well, make fun of me later. A more hospitable environment for bacteria to grow. Right. right? Same goes for digestive enzymes to a certain extent, mm-hmm. but that's that's a big one. PPI use. Yeah, and the other thing is, as we get older, we talked about this in a prior episode. That as you get older, your ability to make hydrochloric acid diminishes. Right. So that in and of itself can set you up for a SIBO type picture. Yeah. The other concept is that there's something called the migrating motor complex. Oh yeah. Which I helps get, with, I was with hoping yeah. we get there. I love <laughs> migrating motor complexes. <laughs> its job is kind of like peristalsis to move things through and to actually flush the small intestine and flush the bacteria through. So there's a constant movement and a flushing of that small intestine and there are certain things that can impair that. Turns out that peristalsis is not just <laughs> for digesting your food and getting right. it through the chute. Yeah, it's kind of like a street sweeper. Yes. Yeah. So there's another set of peristaltic movements called the migrating motor complex. And what stimulates the migrating motor complex, Michael? You mean the chute sweepers? <laughs> That's it. Well, it turns out uh-huh. there's a molecule. What is it? It's called motilin. Mm, that makes sense. It's hormone. Motilin. And it is released from endocrine cells in the mucosa mm-hmm. of the duodenum mm-hmm. or the small intestine. And this is increased 90 to 120 minutes after a meal. Which makes perfect sense because that's when you want to do the sweeping. That's right. To sweep through undigested foods, etc. And microbes. Yeah. Yes. So mm-hmm. motilin is suppressed in response to fast. So this is why meal timing can be helpful to improve things like small intestinal bacteria overgrowth because it's going to increase migrating motor complex activity. Right. And so that being said, there's a lot of other things that are associated with causing SIBO, right? Things in the more distal small intestine. Mm-hmm, right. Things like that are anatomical. Right. So here's where we think about problems around the ileocecal valve Patency. Which keeps the large intestine bugs in their place. Correct. Mm-hmm. And if they're, those wily bugs are <laughs> not kept in their place, then they will migrate up into the distal part of the small intestine, causing symptoms. So what are some of the problems of having an overgrowth of bacteria in the distal ileum? What do we think about? 
What are they doing if there are high amounts of bugs in the distal ilium? They're not only causing gas, they're preventing the reabsorption of specific nutrients that should be reabsorbed in that distal small intestine. They're fermenting things. They're fermenting proteins. They're fermenting bile acids. Mm -hmm. They're preventing the recirculation or uptake of bile they're just causing a mess. They're in the man. way, man. They're just making a mess. But then think about other things too that we talk about that will set someone up for SIBO. Things that might actually slow the motility in general, like hypothyroidism yes. or certain pain medications, opioids, for example, that just slow all of the motility in your GI tract. You see how that might interfere with that migrating motor complex Correct. and prevent the, the shoot sweeping. Yes, yes. <laughs> It increases somebody's predisposition to developing right. small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And to your point, you know, it's it's the ferment the fermenting of things that causes gas. There's a problem with the breakdown and reabsorption of bile acids and fats in general because bacteria themselves can deconjugate bile salts and bile acids. Yeah, and if they're fermenting protein to an excessive degree, some of these protein fermentation products have negative health consequences to them, at least to the lumen of the GI tract, if not even more systemically mm-hmm. so uh pro i think of like tmao right right and so bacteria are, are fermenting things like carnitine choline into tma tma intercirculation becomes tmao which has been associated with cardiovascular disease so right. you know that's just one example of what happens when bacteria are excessively fermenting food particles and food particles yeah sure we all know what you mean okay but also think about all the stuff that gets broken down and reabsorbed in your small intestine vitamins like b12 and folate so it's very common for SIBO patients to have significant vitamin insufficiency as well iron interesting right yeah so, so um so there's that how do you know if you got it how do you know hmm. if you've got the SIBO thing since we have already established that we had never heard of it <laughs> well it's not the end all be all we don't know everything, but that that might suppose that a lot of other doctors out there have mm-hmm. not heard of it as well. So what A should we be looking out for clinically? Well, first of all, these are the patients who fell under that umbrella term of IBS, yeah. right? that irritable bowel syndrome. A lot of them, in fact, have SIBO. And some of it is because of what you and I just discussed that a lot of physicians don't know about it, nor has it been really taught to conventional docs. And so these are the patients that you're giving laxatives or emodium to. I remember having a patient in clinic. This was prior to me learning about SIBO as a condition and had right upper quadrant pain. You? No, the patient. Oh. And, you know, naturally you work them up for all the concerning signs and some, you know, all gallbladder the, disease. Yeah, everything, mm-hmm. chandelier sign. Mm-hmm. Di- mm-hmm. We had an ultrasound. We did, we did the whole shebang. Mm-hmm. Everything's fine. Still has right upper quadrant pain. <laughs> and I still to this day, I'm like, I think he had SIBO. I think that guy just had SIBO. Oh my gosh. And, you know, had I known, right, because it wasn't sharp. It wasn't the type of right upper quadrant pain that you think is, but you have mm-hmm. to do due diligence to work them up for all those things. But I think that it was just a minor, he described it as even a fullness, but just an, an uncomfortable fullness. And I just think of, gas pain, right? That's kind of right. what gas pain feels like. And so I kind of, I kind of wish I would have known some of those, Michael, if I had only known sort of situations. If I went back and I thought about all the years of all the patients that had been done a disservice by me and many others, because we didn't have this information, it makes me sad. 
Yeah, that was just the one guy that I didn't <laughs> help. The rest of them were. were well, I've been I've been around a lot fl- longer. Flaming success. <laughs> it's just the one that slipped through the cracks. <laughs> but everyone else but, is cured. But I think your bigger point was you're looking for these symptoms. You're looking for either constipation or diarrhea. Sometimes you're looking for bloating. You might just notice it by a vitamin deficiency. And then once you dig a little deeper, they're like, oh, I'm always bloated and constipated. And people say, oh, no, I have regular bowel movements, not realizing that having a bowel movement once every four days is not normal. Right. It's become normal to them. Right. And so when you dig a little bit deeper and you ask more specific questions, you can kind of narrow in on whether or not their IBS, quote unquote, might actually be SIBO. Right. So you got a patient with IBS. Mm-hmm. They maybe have some abdominal pain, maybe right upper quadrant pain. <laughs> um and they've got bloating, gas, reflux, all these and early satiety, all those things. Mm-hmm. How do you work them up? Well, first of all, there are a couple of things you can do. Depending on your level of suspicion, you can go right to SIBO testing. But in most IBS patients, they start with things like the GI effects. Of course, having already ruled out anything acutely bad with looking for alarm symptoms that we've talked about previously, but of course, if it's just, of course, all right, everybody, of course, we're doing due diligence just to get that out there. Okay. Having that being completely done, you think about a stool test like the GI effects. And although the GI effects isn't diagnostic for SIBO, there are things that we see on the GI effects that might lead you down that path. And there are things you might find on the GI effects that lead you in a different path. So that's a good first step, I think. Right. What might you see on a GI effects that would point you even more toward the direction of ruling in, ruling Hmm. out SIBO? Good question. Some of the things, well, first and foremost, it's, it's possible to have a completely normal GI effects and still have SIBO. That's a colon test, and we're talking about the small intestine. But there are things that we see on the GI effects that might, in the right clinical presentation, make you think of SIBO. Things like a high abundance of commensal bacteria in general as compared to a healthy cohort. Right? Yeah, where there's smoke, there's fire. If you've right. got a large amount of bacteria in the large intestine, it's very plausible that there could also be a large amount of bacteria in the small intestine. You'd also think about problems in the whole digestion absorption section, like elevated fecal fats and products of protein breakdown. Because bacteria in the small intestine make a mess of things. Oh, yeah. And they ferment, break down primary bile acids into secondary bile acids, impair the ability for the small intestine to reabsorb and just absorb fat from the diet and reabsorb bile, leading to higher fecal fats, particularly... yeah. Go ahead. Long-chain fatty acids and phospholipids is what we see very commonly on the GI effects. Right. We also talked a little bit about how the pancreatic elastase can start to drift downward. And although there's not a lot of literature, there is literature to say that SIBO itself can cause villus atrophy. Yeah, luminal damage. And then villus atrophy can cause a low pancreatic elastase due to the feedback loop from things like cholecystokinin and stuff that are blocked. Super interesting. We don't normally see pancreatic insufficiency Mm -hmm. in SIBO. We don't see pancreatic elastase levels below 200 or especially below 100, but we might see it in like the 250 range, 300. That's Mm -hmm. pretty common. And if you can consider that having a whole bunch of bacteria high up, just fermenting everything you eat, you might also see high short chain fatty acids. Right. From fiber fermentation. Right, because you've got excessive fermentation of protein or fiber, just depending on which of the two or both that you're eating. So you might see high products of protein breakdown too, because those are fermentation products. So, it, Or you could see both, high short chain fatty acids, high products of protein breakdown, low pancreatic elastase, all those things. The flip side is sometimes we see the 
opposite extreme where we see really low short chain fatty acids because patients just inherently know whenever I eat fiber, it's like putting gasoline on a fire. So they start to just themselves avoid it. So sometimes we see really low short chain fatty acids in patients who avoid foods because it makes them feel bad. Yeah, particularly like fermentable foods, beans, cruciferous vegetables, things like that. What about commensal bacteria, Michael? In general, you'll see commensal bacteria high levels across the board. Um, You know, you turn that commensal page, 24 bacteria, and you see high, 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 high. And maybe even in the culture analysis, I've seen it where you get four, five, six bacteria aerobically growing out in the culture at a four plus. Like that's suspicious to me as well. Mm -hmm. What about the presence of that one commensal methanobrevibacter smithii? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you were trying to lead me down that I path was. for you, and you I, found it. I just missed it. You got it. No, I didn't. Oh. I think you should go because you're the, you got it. <laughs> As its name implies, it's a methanogen. It produces methane, and we know that methane is highly associated with SIBO. Methane itself can slow transit, which is no bueno. These are constipated patients, right? right? Some. Yeah, some. Correct. Right. So keep in mind, we're getting... So methanobrevibacter smithii secretes methane. Methane is not diagnostic for SIBO. Right. So keep this in mind. When we're talking about SIBO and a diagnosis for SIBO, it's an excess of hydrogen production when you're doing a SIBO test. So methane actually might be an entirely separate entity. Mm-hmm. Um, and it does slow transit time. So high methane production is more likely to contribute to constipation. Whether that is associated with SIBO, I don't think we know the answer to that yet. Mm. All right, so we kind of ruled out big bad stuff. We have this IBS patient. We did the GI effects. We have all of these things that are leading us down a SIBO path. Let's talk about the SIBO breath test itself. Yeah, you want to follow up with the SIBO breath test. And that sort of stems from what we were just talking about. But the SIBO breath test, first, why is it a breath test, right? Mm. It seems kind of weird to be doing a GI assessment by doing a breath test. But what happens is that we're measuring two types of gases. We're measuring hydrogen, we're measuring methane. And we don't make those people, meaning we. Most of us are people listening to this. <laughs> Cats and dogs. Are I think like, it meant oh. just we, like me and you. We don't make this. No, I'm going you. you out there. Though, oh. Problems. Um, Collectively. Humans do not make hydrogen and methane on the reg. No? No. Hmm. Not with general respiration. We make CO2. Oh, got it. I, I didn't know that's what you meant. Yeah. So the way that you're going to be expelling hydrogen and methane is from the bugs that are making it in your GI tract. So what we're doing is we're measuring these particular levels over time. You get a baseline reading after a a specific fast, which is essentially kind of starving out the bacteria in response to whatever recent meals that you had. You're getting a baseline assessment. And then you provide those bugs with a strong fuel source in the form of a lactulose solution. You're giving them just direct fuel. And you're measuring the production of these gases at 20 minutes, 40 minutes, 60 minutes, and seeing how high the, the production of those gases reaches. And the diagnosis of SIBO is an increase of hydrogen of 20 parts per million after 90 minutes. Why 90 minutes? Or at 90 minutes, I should say. Well, that's the accepted transit time from your mouth to the end of the small intestine, though... We know everyone has varying types of transit times. And so the American College of Gastroenterology in their North American consensus paper chose 90 minutes as 
probably the point where you can make most SIBO diagnoses for hydrogen. Right, right. But I think two important points. Number one, the reason we choose lactulose is because it's not absorbed and it will make its way all through the small intestine to the large intestine. Yeah. And number two, the fact that we're picking it up in your breath isn't just that by drinking the lactulose, you know, you're, you're picking up the gases that come through your mouth. It's really that the gases get reabsorbed, go through your circulation, and then come through your lungs and into the tube. Good point. Yeah. It's not like you're expelling the contents right. of your GI tract. Right. That would, you would have bad breath, I <laughs> think, if that bad. would be what's going on. Also, on the test, there's an evaluation for methane, right? Right. And methane's a little bit of a separate thing. Yeah, it's a different, um, different entity. In the original consensus paper, they didn't really lay out any diagnostic criteria around methane, but there is essentially a, a concern that methane production at any point in the GI tract, if it's elevated, that that could have some sort of clinical significance. It does. And, and I think the bigger point is, although they don't, outline it specifically. We know there's clinical significance, even at very low methane levels. Right, because methane slows transit time. Mm -hmm. It's associated with constipation. Right. But, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting because there was just recently another article put out by the American College of Gastroenterology, which I think lends itself to uh, us maybe talking a little bit about it because mm. it talks about methane and maybe some suggestions. So this is what do we think we know, right? Nice. So. Okay. What is the name of this paper? <laughs> well, it was published in the American Journal of Gastroenterology, February 2020. And it's... And That's like now. Yeah. It's in, in essence authored by Pimentel, who, as you mentioned earlier in this episode, is kind of, you know, one of the, the key opinion leaders as far as SIBO is concerned yeah. in the country. Yeah. And so this was kind of just a revisit of that consensus. Right. And what I find interesting is they, in essence, have um, kind of backed up some of the initial consensus decisions around breath testing with glucose and lactulose, but they outlined a different terminology for methane, which I find interesting to give it its own distinct kind of clinical condition. What's the name of this paper? The name of the paper is ACG Clinical Guidelines, Small Intestinal Bacterial Overgrowth. Got it. And like I said, February 2020, American Journal of Gastroenterology. But what they're now calling a distinct methane condition is IMO. Like so you can have IMO. My, in my own opinion. Yeah, it's like IMO SIBO. IMO SIBO. Mm, well, it's IMO, intestinal methanogenic overgrowth. Yeah. Cool, So right? we've got a phrase, right? So yeah. now we've got SIBO and now mm -hmm. we've got IMO. So theoretically... <laughs> This breath test that we're doing is a combined SIBO slash IMO test. Oh, it's a twofer. It is a twofer. And it helps to demonstrate that these are two very different conditions, the production of hydrogen in the small intestine or the production of methane throughout the entire GI tract, which also probably have two very different clinical presentations, right? The other distinction is that to be completely technical, SIBO is caused by bacteria and all all of the methanogens that are causing methane are actually archaea. Archaea. Yes. So they actually make that distinction in the paper as well. What is an archaea? Right? It's a single-celled organism. It's a prokaryotic, prokaryotic organism. Yeah, it's a single-celled organism, very much like a bacteria, yeah. but if we're being really scrutinous about phylogeny, wow, then it's <laughs> a little bit different. But 
it's just interesting that they actually make a bigger distinction. Is that a word? In the most, <laughs> it is now. <laughs> They're even making a bigger distinction between hydrogen and methane, though both clinically important and both measured on the standard hydrogen methane breath test. And what is their recommendations for the diagnosis or the identification of IMO? I mean, they still mention the old North American consensus paper from two or three years ago as greater than 10. Um, and they also it, discuss how levels of three to nine yes. are of somewhat of a borderline interest and should be assessed alongside the clinical presentation. Right, still some clinical significance. And they may, and with a clinical presentation that's positive for constipation and you know gas bloating, things like that, it may warrant treatment. Correct. Patty. Yes, sir. It's time to disclaim. Oh, let's disclaim, go for it. The contents of this podcast are meant for educational purposes only and are not meant to be misconstrued as medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment recommendations. Thanks for that. You're welcome. Oh my gosh, that, that was a lot of information on SIBO. But you know what the sad part is? There's so much more information I feel like there. I have so many more questions. There are tons of questions. We might have to, to pick this up like, and, and do more SIBO at some point because yeah. I've got so many questions. You know Christine Stubbe goes to SIBOCon. She does. That's mm -hmm. right. We should bring her on for a SIBOCon. Yes. We should call her up. live from SIBOCon. Yes. That's a great idea. We should absolutely do that. But since there's so many questions, mm -hmm. I think one of them is, in fact, the question of the day. Oh, God. What time is it? Oh, you know what time it is. Question of the day. Question of the day. Question of the day. Question of the day. Wait, what time is it? Oh, I think you know what time it is. Question of the day, question of the day, question of the day, question of the day. Yeah. Can I ask a first question before the question of the day? Sure. Do you think people realize that that's us singing in every single one of these dumb jingles? Uh, I don't think people are really <laughs> giving it much thought, honestly. <laughs> it keeps me up at night. I'm just amazed that there's somebody that has actually stuck around long enough to hear it. <laughs> But if Fair. they have, they're probably not thinking about it so hard as to say, I wonder who's singing that. Fair. Okay. Um, well, short answer, yes. I think they've figured out that it's us singing. Okay. My question is, can a diabetic do the SIBO test knowing that the drink is a lactulose drink? Mm. And same question for lactose intolerant patients. Such a common question we get in medical affairs. And... First and foremost, much like we talked about on the GI effects, if you go to the product page on our website for SIBO, on the right-hand side under additional resources, you'll see a link to the test prep page, which outlines just about all of which I'm about to explain to you um, in the sense that, number one, because the lactulose solution that we use is a combination of lactose and galactose, mm -hmm. it's a sugar, mm -hmm. right? These are sugars. Yeah. Uh, diabetic patients, it, it may increase your blood sugar. So you really do need to be quite careful in a diabetic patient. Yeah, be somewhat, Yeah. And if you're somewhat hesitant about doing the SIBO test because of uncontrolled diabetes, another option might be the GI effects, looking for some of the things we outlined in this podcast, right? Yeah. And then you might think about treating presumptively based right. on the results and the clinical presentation. Correct. The other question that you had about Lactose intolerance is also an interesting one that we get a lot. And these are patients who are deficient in the enzyme lactase, which breaks down lactose, right? Yep. And the lactulose solution can cause discomfort in these patients. Nothing that would harm them, just discomfort. So again, 
to be used with caution in these patients because it may make them symptomatic. Yeah. It's not going to physically harm them other right. than make them feel uncomfortable. And again, if this is a patient you don't want to risk that in, a GI effects might be another option. The third little piece of wow, this. Wow, there's another question. Yeah, no, it's not really a question. It's just throwing this out there. Okay. That some people use the glucose breath test. Glucose is a different substrate instead of lactulose. Right. And it's, I mean, it's out there, it's common, commonly used. And the, the problem, well, maybe not a problem. The difference between the two is that lactulose is not absorbed, like we said, and can go all the way through your small intestine without being absorbed and therefore give you a pretty good read, even on the distal small intestine. And as Michael pointed out, the distal small intestine, there's a lot of things going on there that you wouldn't want to miss, yeah. right? Yeah. And when you use a, like, yeah. Well, I was just going to say the methane production might be clinically significant, not just in the small intestine, but even in the large intestine oh, yeah. where methanobrevibacter smithii, the bacteria is present. Mm -hmm. So it's not just a condition of the small intestine, which okay. is why getting a read of methane production throughout the entire GI tract is helpful. Right. And glucose as a substrate is pretty quickly reabsorbed in the proximal small intestine. So it may miss some overgrowth in the more distal small intestine, just some things to think about. But again, if you go to the test prep page, which links from our SIBO product page online, it kind of outlines all of these things. Cool. Very yeah. good. Awesome. That was such a great question of the day. <laughs> I'm so glad I asked that. It was a good one. I think that's good for today. We're, we're, we covered SIBO pretty well there. Yeah, we don't want to bore people. Well, and maybe people are just becoming from, they're just heard about SIBO yeah, for the first time. Yeah, we don't overload them with and information. And we're talking about monogastric, oh my God. migrating motor complex. Who, we didn't talk about monogastric. Yeah, I found that word in an article. I really like that one. What's it's, what's non-monogastric? What's something that's polygastric? Like a, like cow. <laughs> like meat. <laughs> <laughs> like a giraffe? Like, no, ruminants. <laughs> Ruminant animals, right? Uh, they, do they have they SIBO? They're polygastric. Do they have SIBO? That's a wonderful I question. I don't know. Do they have polycebo? Which stomach do they use? I don't know. These are things. They have multiple stomachs. Yeah. They don't have multiple intestine. Mm. So anyway. Oh my gosh, that was a tangent. That was. Do a breath test on a cow. If you're out there, <laughs> do a breath test on a cow. Email podcast at gdx.net. Let us know what you find out. What is the appropriate baseline for a cow? Oh, oh, what's the rise so in hydrogen for a cow? That's so weird. Perform that study. Get back to us. That'd be awesome. We might yeah. collaborate. Cool. Okay. What are we talking about next time? Hmm. Good answer. Sometime on the lab report. <laughs> next time, last time, anytime. We're going to talk about more SIBO. Are we? Not next time. Just oh, sometime. Sometime. Okay. You've been listening to the lab report. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast, rate us, and leave us a review. To learn more about Genova Diagnostics, visit our website at gdx.net. There you'll find information on specific testing, educational resources, and how to connect with our show. Call us at 1-800-522-4762 or email us at podcast at gdx.net. There's also some literature to support that blastocystis feed off of bacteria as well. Really? Mm-hmm. Wow. They're Christine Stubbe told me that. That's pretty wild. Therefore, it must be true. So they're like calling other bacteria. Hmm. We might want to check that out. Little monsters. We might want to check that out. wonder how much of that's really going on there. I don't know. It is like mayhem down there. Mad, Mad Max, <laughs> Thunderdome, just pure mayhem.
There's a what lot going they, on. <laughs> what are they doing down there? It's crazy. They're eating each other. Crazy. Oh my gosh. 